And so if you major in accounting, you'll never want for a job. You'll always have work. But I think that's kind of silly. The idea that the purpose of life is to just have a job. You want to be excellent. You want to contribute. You want to do something more than just have a job. Um, and so unfortunately, I, I didn't understand that uh, success in life doesn't come from having a job. Success in life comes from having a passion. And when you love something, you'll be good at that something. And when you're good at that something, you'll be successful at it. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Live Right Now. Today, we are talking with Hiram Lewis, who is a history professor at BYU-Idaho. And very excited to listen to Hiram and his experience uh, as a teacher and what it means to live a life of contribution in the community as a history teacher. And also that specific perspective that he has looking at life through that, that lens of, of history and as a teacher. So uh, Hiram, welcome and, and thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Jacob. So to start off, I just want to ask you um, to share a little bit about your background and kind of how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, I was born in Arizona, a little mining town called Ajo. It's in the southwestern corner of the state. So I sometimes tell my students if it hadn't been for the Gadsden Purchase, I'd be a Mexican <laughs> because I'd been born just on the other side of the international line. Um, but it, it was kind of dying when we lived there because the mine closed down because of labor disputes. And so my dad was running a, a car dealership there. And so the car dealership couldn't survive the economic downturn of the town. So he, he decided to go back to school and uh, wound up getting an MBA at the University of Oregon. So we moved up to Eugene, Oregon, and they liked it enough to just stay there. So that's where I grew up. And it's a beautiful place. It rains a lot. So I, I would never move back, but it was a, a good place to have a childhood. I was quite obsessed with sports as a kid. That was my thing. I come from a really big family. And so I had lots of playmates to play sports with. I have an older brother and seven younger brothers or six younger brothers, I should say. And then I have um, six sisters. So plenty of opportunities to, to get engaged in athletic activities. So sports and social life. I was always in student government growing up and class president and things like that. But interestingly enough, I wasn't that into academics. So it's kind of surprising I wound up where I did even though academics weren't a priority for me. I was a, you know, a, a C plus kind of student, uh, just kind of coasted by. But I went on a mission that helped turn things around for me. I kind of caught fire. And as a missionary, I learned to appreciate the love of learning. And so I got back and, and, and turned things around and became a, a much better student. I don't know if you had any follow-up questions on that or if you want me to keep going. Yeah, no, I, I think that's awesome. So right at this point, you're a student and you're just, Living, you know, life as a, a young single adult going to school. Yeah. And so I, I went to BYU Provo and I get back from my mission and I enjoyed learning and I wanted to major in history because that's where my passion has always been. And probably because I, I just can't make up my mind, you know, history is the most kind of all of the above of all the fields of study. Right. So I, you know, if somebody would have said, what do you want to learn about economics, literature, philosophy, politics? What is it? And I would have said, yes. And uh, so instead of majoring in everything, you major in history because history is obviously the history of politics, economics, literature, philosophy, and all the rest. Hmm. So you get to cover whatever you want. You get a very broad perspective by studying history. So that's what I wanted to major in. But I listened to some bad advice, and I think people were well-intentioned. But there is a tendency among people to just practicality. And I get it. You know, you want to be able to provide for a family. That's an important part of life. And so, you know, people said major in accounting because there's two things that are certain in this life, death and taxes. And so if you major in accounting, you'll never want for a job. You'll always have work. 
But I think that's kind of silly. The idea that the purpose of life is to just have a job. You want to be excellent. You want to contribute. You want to do something more than just have a job. Um, and so unfortunately, I, I didn't understand that uh, success in life doesn't come from having a job. Success in life comes from having a passion. And when you love something, you'll be good at that something. And when you're good at that something, you'll be successful at it. And that would have been uh, better advice to follow. Now, I get it. There's limits to this, right? Somebody could say, well, I have a passion for playing video games and um, dedicate their life to playing video games. And, and yeah, obviously that would be a career path. But there is a middle ground there where um, you can find something that you're good at, that you love, and that the world needs. That was what I think it was John Widsow. When people would ask him, what should I study in college or what career should I go into? He'd say, I have three questions for you. What are you good at? What do you love? And what does the world need? And answering those three questions led me ultimately to history. I had to go back and get a second bachelor's degree. I worked in public accounting for a while, but just it never clicked with me. I didn't click with it. So I got a pretty resounding shake on the shoulders from the powers that be. You know, the Lord woke me up. And, and, and in some ways, it's good. I mean, it was a mistake to go into accounting, but in some ways, it was good that I did because that wrong turn, I think I appreciate what I'm doing now much more. I hear some of my colleagues complaining sometimes, you know, about the pay or about how hard they work or something. And I just think I'm never going to have those complaints uh, because I know what the corporate world is like. And the idea that, you know, people have it better off, you know, making big salaries in the corporate world. I just, I know better. They might be making good salaries, but their lives aren't nearly as blessed as that as college professors. So that wrong term was, term was worth it in that sense, uh, because I think it woke me up to some things that other people maybe don't have a perspective on. That's really powerful. It reminds me of that video where Elder Holland shared the story of, of a dad and a kid and they went, they had two paths and they went down the wrong path and they felt very right about going down that path. And then they knew for certain that that was the wrong path. So they turned around and, and they knew, they knew for sure that the other path was the right path for them. Uh, yeah. I want to ask just kind of in that upbringing. So you originally had wanted to study history and were interested in that, but followed the advice to go into accounting. Speaking of your desire to study history and, and all those other subjects, you know, what, what kind of drove that interest that you had and, and maybe what were some experiences or role models that got you interested in, in a study of history or, or of life in the way, the way you were? Well, so history is in a sense, a, a queen of the social studies, right? It's, it's kind of supreme. Because, you know, you can have lots of interests, but to me, people are just interesting. I'm just fascinated by human behavior and why people do the things they do, what they do. And history takes a very macro look at that. So if you're interested in people, as I am, you're interested in history. Now, some people aren't interested in people. You know, Edmund Wilson was interested in ants. Some people are interested in chemicals. My friend Brian Piper is interested in, you know, aerodynamics. My friend Craig Johnson is interested in statistical problems abilities, right? So different people have different interests. But I'm fascinated by people and specifically people on the macro scale. Uh, my wife's a psychologist, so she's interested in people on the micro scale, right? Looking at individual people and kind of uh, diagnosing their behaviors and understanding it from a, a kind of an individual psychological perspective. But understanding mass behavior, understanding how people act in groups and in nations and in collectives, um, that's what historians look at. And so an interest in people generally led me into an interest in history. And I've had this interest for as long as I can remember. I mean, my earliest, you know, the earliest books I love to read were, you know, biographies. I had, a, I had a biography of Thomas Edison that I must have read, you know, 50 times when I was a little kid. You know, I had kind of introductory American history textbooks for children. And I would just 
plow through those things again and again and again. I'd wear the covers off. So uh, this interest uh, came early, but maybe I let it lapse a little bit because of my, you know, I lost focus and got interested in other things that didn't have as much uh, long-term value. It's really interesting. I, I feel like a lot of people probably have a similar experience where they maybe take a couple routes and then end up where they, they wanted to be all along. I personally have, you know, had an interest in art and I, I started in architecture and just never <laughs> totally felt right about that, but I felt good about it, but not, you know, I, a, a little un unsettled and now the p pieces are slowly starting to come together and I feel good about studying art and art education, but I'm glad that I've taken the courses I have and the path that has gotten me to this understanding of, yes, that's what I want to study. What advice would you give to to young adults about, you know, finding their career path or life interest? And I love what you said about not just having a career, but being a contributor and being passionate about things. What advice do you have on that? Well, I guess there's kind of two equally mistaken extremes that I've heard. You know, sometimes you get, you might call it the German model, right? Where the secret to success is to start early, to specialize, to know exactly what you want to do, to set your plan, and then to have this undeviate in course from your plan. And as I understand it, you know, kids in Germany kind of determine a career path in like middle school or something and then kind of chart the course to it. And I suppose that has its efficiencies. But then there's like, I remember the novelist, his name's not coming to me, he wrote all those legal thrillers set down in the South, like A Time to Kill in the firm, John Grisham. John Grisham, I remember him giving, giving a graduation speech to some prestigious university saying that don't plan anything, just let it, just go with the flow. <laughs> you know, you never know where you're going to wind up. I think both approaches are mistaken. I think the way to do it is to have a plan and to act on that plan, but to be flexible within that plan, right? Don't have a plan, but don't be rigid about it. Don't say, I've set this plan, so therefore I have to stick to it and I have to continue on it because I'm a finisher or something like that. You have to say, I have to move forward with something. And so I act on the best, the best information I have. But then as I get more information, as I, as I get more light and knowledge, I'm humble enough and flexible enough to go where the spirit leads me, go where um, good advice leads me, go where situations and opportunities lead me. So, you know, maybe you like the scripture metaphors, maybe it's a little like Nephi, right? He went forward not knowing exactly where he was going, but he was acting, he was doing, he was going and, and, and making his way the best he could until he got further guidance and then opportunities presented himself. And then he said, ah, this is where I'm supposed to be. Wow. That, that's pretty powerful. And I, I mean, just looking back at my own short experience so far, that parallels pretty well what I've experienced. So I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. So at this point, you you know you decided to study history. You went back and got a, a second master's master's degree, right, or bachelor's degree, second bachelor's, yeah, second bachelor's. And then you, what happened after that point? Did you when did you meet your wife, and and where did you go from that point? Yeah, so I I was married when I worked in public accounting. So I met my wife at BYU. She was my next door neighbor. We were in the same ward. So we met there and then we moved to Southern California where I worked as a, a public accountant and she kind of had a little bit of a career. And then once things got derailed, thankfully I was married to her because Boise State University had a, had a, a loophole, a couple of loopholes actually. One, I could get in-state tuition in Idaho, even though I'd never lived there simply because my wife was a citizen of Idaho. So I got in-state tuition at Boise State. And then they also had a loophole where um, I didn't have to complete a, a full four years to get a second bachelor's degree. I had a minor at BYU in history. And so I was able to transfer all that minor credit. So I was able to get uh, a second bachelor's degree in just one year 
at Boise State. And, and once I had discovered my passion in history, you know, I went from being a C plus student in high school to being, you know, never gotten an A, anything less than an A since I found my calling in history and it's been terrific. And, and so at Boise State, I had some terrific mentors. There was, I took the advice that I had heard, which was to study, take teachers, not classes. And so I guess I could have said, hey, I want to study this particular topic. But instead, I got to Boise State and said, well, who are the best teachers? And we didn't have, you know, rate my professor or anything back then. Not that I would have trusted it anyway. It seems like rate my professor is more rating professors on how easy they are. And there might be an inverse correlation between professor ease and professor quality. But uh, just based on feedback I was hearing and through the grapevine, I realized that um, Shelton Woods was one of the best professors in the university and one of the hardest. I'm not sure how he doesn't rate my professor, but I'm guessing it, it's not great, which is a tragedy because he's just a fantastic professor. And he taught Asian history. I had never studied Asian history, had no interest in it, but I wanted to take classes from Shelton. And he turned out to be a, a dear friend. After I took his class, I, I got the highest score in his class of, you know, I had some 300 students. And so he, at that point, was willing to take me on as kind of a, uh, a personal mentee. And he taught me, we, we did a directed readings course the two of us together, even though he was serving as associate dean at the time. So he was really busy, but he was kind enough and Christian enough to take me under his wing and work with me to study, to do a full directed readings course on modern China. And so here I am studying Asian history and I have no idea why, because I'm, I'm going into a PhD program to study American history. But when I went on the job market, I had a, I had a position teaching back East at Skidmore college and uh, I was teaching American history there, but I always wanted to teach at a church school. And a position opened at BYU, Idaho, and they said they needed somebody who could teach American history, but also Asian history. <laughs> it was a really odd combination. I've never seen a job opening like that. And I thought, well, now it makes sense. Shelton Woods, I studied Asian history with him, a man named Peter Bueller, also at Boise State, a, a, a dear friend, a terrific man. He, I studied South Asian history with him. And so all those classes that I thought were just kind of distractions from American history turned out to be valuable and led me right here to BYU-Idaho. So you can see the plan in retrospect, even though it seemed a little bit chaotic on the way up. But I, I, I did a second bachelor's at Boise State. And then once I was done there, I applied to graduate schools. I really wanted to go to the University of Pennsylvania. There was a, there's a historian there named Bruce Kuklick that does American intellectual history. And I really liked his work. And, you know, it of course is Ivy League prestige and all this kind of stuff. And I eventually got admitted there, but they couldn't offer me a scholarship. And the University of Southern California gave me their best one. And it was such a lucrative <laughs> offer. Somebody who's as cautious as I am, and again, worried about providing for the family, we decided to pick USC. And it turned out to be a great decision. USC was a, a wonderful place to go to graduate school. We made great friends living in Los Angeles. We loved the, uh, the city. We go back quite often. We were able to buy a house back when houses in Southern California could be afforded by graduate students, which was a good financial decision for us. And I had some, some excellent mentors there. My doctoral advisor was a fellow named Richard Fox. He kind of became famous, famous as historians go, as a cultural historian. He wrote kind of the, the definitive biography of the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. So he kind of did the intersection of politics, intellectual life, and religion. And I thought that was a really interesting field of study. So he made sense for me to go to as a mentor. And he was a good mentor, but we didn't click as much on a personal level. He just you know, has a different life outlook. But I did a minor in philosophy and there was a philosopher at the University of Southern California who since passed, it was Dallas Willard. And he's, he was an ordained Christian minister, as I understand it. And so he and I had a much more similar worldview. 
And so I got to study philosophy with somebody who, who brought a Christian perspective to it. And so he became also a dear friend and a, a great mentor and one of the most impressive people I've ever met as far as Christ-like charity, but also powerful intellect. Oh, there's a, there's a lot there. And I, I'm noticing a couple of things. I, I'd like to go back to something you mentioned about how when you finally started studying what you were passionate about with history, you before hadn't gotten A's, but then you were getting all A's. And I've noticed the same thing with when I switched my major over to to what I'm studying right now, which includes art and filmmaking. My grades have been a lot better. I've wanted to do my homework. Why do you think that is? And, you know, what, what could you, you know, lesson could you draw from that? Well, I guess, you know, is it too banal to say that where there's a will, there's a way, right? I mean, I used to think, and a lot of people still think, and it's, it's kind of received wisdom, and I think it's totally wrong that, you know, you kind of have it or you don't. And some people, you know, you're born with a certain IQ and people do well in school based on that IQ. But the longer I teach, the realize, uh, the more I realize that's not true, that my top students aren't the ones who are just the brightest. You know, you can kind of gauge people's intelligence a little bit when you meet them, the way, you know, they speak and you can see their brains working and you say, oh, that's a really smart person. And yet they're not the ones generally who do the best in my courses. The ones who do the best are the ones who are persistent. So what makes you persist? Well, you can't just have willpower, but if you love something, you have a natural desire to persist. And since grit and tenacity lead to success, then a passion for a topic, the grit and tenacity will come naturally. And that means that passion leads to success. So it's a chicken and an egg question, right? People say, well, are you good at something? Therefore, you love it because you're good at it? Or, or do you, are you good at it because you love it? Does the love come first? Does the ability come first? I, I think it's a little of both, but I think it's probably more the love leading to the ability. A passion leads to the persistence that leads to the acquisition of the ability. What do you think having a choice has to do with it? Like recognizing that this is something I'm choosing to do versus yeah, like, well, we, I don't know why I'm doing it, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I said there, well, there's a will, there's a way. And sure. I mean, if, if you're doing it begrudgingly or, you know, if it's not something that you um, love, then you're not entering it into your own free will. And so, you know, if it's, there's some kind of external compulsion, I mean, psychologists have done a lot of research on this. They call it extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. And they found that ability correlates and success correlates with intrinsic motivation much more than extrinsic. It means external motivators, right? Like external rewards or punishments, carrots or sticks, or people who just say, I'm doing this because I want to do it. I will to do it. It's something that I'm choosing to do. The problem with that framing is there's a fine line between the two and there is some kind of relationship between the two. Everybody is going to need extrinsic motivation at some point until they develop the intrinsic motivation. And so how can you transition extrinsic motivations into intrinsic? How can you create a love of something when it isn't there? So I love American literature. I didn't. I had extrinsic motivations once upon a time, right? Grades and naggings and, and professors, you know, getting on my case for not doing my homework and things like that. But eventually I started reading literature and I fell in love with it. And, you know, you wonder if and what role examples play in that. People love things because they see an example of somebody else, others who model certain behaviors. And I knew people and I saw them loving literature. And I said, well, that's interesting. I wonder why that is. Uh, a friend of mine in high school who now teaches literature, and he was talking about it. I'm like, you're really reading this book of your own accord? Why are you doing that? It's not assigned for school. And I just found that interesting. And I kind of, kind of modeled myself well, his behavior was a model for me. And so I developed an intrinsic motivation out of that. That's interesting that you're, I mean, you saw a role model of someone kind of appear in a way that you could see that 
there's someone doing this by their own autonomy, there must be some value there. And so at this point, you're working at BYU-Idaho, you're a professor. And how many kids do you do you have? What are, you know, what's family like looking like for you? And, and how did you balance, you know, work, work and family? I've got five kids. My oldest son is just turned 19 this summer. His name's Mason. He's on his mission down in Argentina. So I served in South America South. He's in South America South. So it's been kind of, it's been kind of fun to have that, that we share. We talk every Monday and it sounds like his experiences are a lot like mine. We're on my mission. So he's my oldest. My second is 17. She's a senior in high school this year running cross country. Her name's Akira. My third, her name's Kobe Jane. She is, she's a freshman this year, also running cross country with her older sister. And Akira and Kobe Jane are best friends. It's very cute. They love each other. They used to fight when they were little, but but they fired the kinks out and it went from being frenemies to just downright friends. And they, you know, share the same friends. They go to the same activities and parties. And so it's terrific. And then I have two little boys. We call them the X-Men. My son Xander is 11. My son Xavier or Javi is six. And so, so that's my family life. My wife, her name is Sunday. We've been married, we got married in 2001. So it was like 22 years. We celebrated our 22nd anniversary this summer and just have a, a wonderful marriage. We're soulmates. I, I couldn't be more pleased with my family life. I'm very, very blessed. So how do you balance work family? Thankfully, that is not much of a, of a concern or a problem. The life of a tenured college professor is, is relatively low stress and generally um, flexible. It's not that we don't work a lot. I do. I, I keep a log of my work and how much I work. And I'm working probably on average 50 hours a week, 45 to 50, which is definitely a full workload. Um, it's not like the hours I was working as a public accountant, but it's, it's full, but it's, it's flexible hours, right? You don't have to be in the office every minute. And uh, I can do a lot of my work from home. And a lot of the work is very enjoyable. A lot of the work is stuff I can do with my kids. So I've had conferences and things I had to go to. And I could take one of my kids along and we could have a nice little road trip and celebrate that or uh, visiting historical sites. And that's something you can do uh, with your family that is uh, part of your job description and part of your professional development. Of course, reading books. And so I love to go to bookstores with my kids and we'll pick out books and we'll take trips. And on our trips, we always find a local used bookstore and we'll each get to pick one out. And, and it's a great activity that is both work-related and family-related. So there's ways to find not just a work-life balance, but a work-life overlap. That's that's a powerful way to think about it. And I, I remember actually one of the classes I took on family finances talked about that, you know, doubling, doubling the, the purpose of, of the activities you do and not, not thinking so narrow-mindedly about things. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to part one of this interview. In part two, we discuss the powerful implications of understanding life in terms of history. It allows us a very grounded and wise understanding of what's happening in the world and helps us see things as they really are. Please join us for part two of this interview in our next episode.